And take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're visiting with us, I'm using the ESV. First Timothy chapter three, starting in verse one. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own Households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would keep your promise that you would use your word. You use the reading of it, and we ask that you would use the preaching of it. For Christ's sake. Amen. I often think about weird things, I'm I'm sure, but one of the things I often think about is when they were in the process of the earliest days creating the internet, did they have any idea kind of what it would become? You know, think about the, the ways that the world has changed since the arrival of the internet. Now, some of you are old enough to remember that very, very clearly, what life was like beforehand and what life was like after. Some of us, we don't really know days apart from uh, email and things like that. Some don't know the days apart from texting. Uh, It's disturbing after that, I guess. One of the things I think that was probably kind of an unintended consequence has been kind of this ability to have the proliferation of ideas happen at an extraordinary speed. Now, for those of you that are not on the internet, I'm proud of you. I wish everybody were more like you. But for those of us that in our midst are perhaps on the internet more, perhaps social media or things like that, uh, we've begun to see that, you know, the world is a crazy place. 
filled with insane ideas, but now because we've kind of taken away the gatekeepers and given everybody their voice, the crazy ideas have multiplied and the evil ideas have multiplied and become legion. And whereas perhaps 60 years ago, Christians felt out of step with the world, man, you feel it now. I remember the, the kitschy kind of bumper stickers when I was a kid of all of the fish swimming one way and the one fish swimming the other way. And it's like, ah, a good little lesson and swing the other way. Man, we feel it now, don't we, though? It's like our ideas are just are, are out of sync with what the world says. Our ideas are just out of sync with what the world holds. Our ideas are just out of sync with the culture in which we live. You see, the reality is that the church has been tasked uh, to play by not her own rules, but to play by God's rules. That's our, our mission. That's our job. We don't really get to set the terms of engagement for life and how we live and how we operate. And we are to follow in his commands. In fact, actually, our denomination has worked very hard to be even so clear as to make a distinction between the things that he's explicitly told us to do and the things that we've just kind of by good and necessary consequence thought out and figured out. You look at that, I mean, our denomination is a category. It's hard to change the BCO, or Book of Church Order. We do it every year, but it's difficult. It's exceptionally difficult to change the confession, what we say the Bible teaches. Making a very clear distinction that, look, if we believe that it's God's word, we have to obey. And honestly... Anytime you have a view like that, that you're going to follow God's word at all costs, it's going to put you out of sync with the world. That's going to happen. That's not to be a surprise or unexpected, but it's really obvious when we get to a conversation about leadership. Right? It gets uh, very clear that the world has certain values for leadership. Certain, certain things that they prize, certain abilities or features that they say, look, look how noble and how good and how grand this thing is. And the church says, well, no. We, we have very specific commands on how church leadership is to operate. In fact, actually, if you've been following through kind of the logical flow of where we've been in this series, it makes good sense. We started out with this idea that God loves his people. He's loved us people since before the foundation of the world, since before he created the world, he loved us. And in fact, if we're really going to kind of put our theology to its logical ends and put it into practice, church government and church leadership is proof that God loves us. It's a weird way to think about it, isn't it? But it's true. Church leadership, church governance is proof that God loves us. We see that in how church leadership is designed to operate. We looked at Ezekiel for this to see how it's designed to be a relationship of shepherding where the leaders care for those that God has called them to care for and to see them do well and nurtured and made strong and healthy, not predatory leadership. And if that happens correctly, we get to see that the church then benefits by having right priorities and 
people are empowered to do the right things. But you'll notice I have kind of neglected one major and important question, one kind of looming in the background. Who are the leaders? When I've talked about how they're proof of God's love, I've talked about uh, what they're supposed to do, how the Lord hates it when they're predatory uh, predatory towards his people or tyrannical. Talked about how we're supposed to have ministry of the word and things like that, but we really haven't looked at this kind of background question of who's supposed to be leading. Who's supposed to be doing it? And honestly, if we're going to be kind of candid about that, it's going to put us out of sync with the world. This is one of those answers that's socially, politically incorrect. It's a little bit uncomfortable, perhaps. But I would say even before we get to that answer, it's important for us as a confessional church living in an evangelical uh, Christian community, it's important that we think about kind of how we talk about this conversation as a whole. I'm going to back up maybe perhaps to a point you wouldn't expect, but even how we explain the gospel. Now, when we make a big deal of the gospel, and amen, we should, right? Big deal. That's kind of the hill worth dying on. But even when we go to explain what the gospel is, the good news, the hope of salvation, we explain it as a gospel of being saved from. What does that mean? Well, it means that when we go to talk about what the ministry of salvation is, it's an exercise in being saved from something. And we tell the story of creation. We say, look, God made everything good, and then Adam sinned, and in Adam's sin, everything was broken because of evil. And then on top of that, God cursed it, which was double extra bad. And then as a result of that, life has been hard and difficult, and we've had this problem of sin running throughout human history ever since. And once it became abundantly clear in the fullness of time that humanity could not fix that problem, the second person of the Trinity stepped inside time and space. Left the glory of heaven itself, the glory of being in the presence of the triune God, the second person of the Trinity stepped inside time and space, stepped inside humanity, stepped inside the womb of a young Jewish girl named Mary grew there until delivery, grew in that home under Joseph's leadership, learning the law of God in the tabernacle, the synagogue, I mean, and growing until he would eventually go to the cross. And this is where we kind of get our most common catchphrase, which is a good one, and it's a right one, and it's a true one. Jesus died to save me from my sins. And that is 100% correct. You should make a big deal out of it. Listen, that is a truth worth dying for. It is, however, not the whole story. For those of you old enough to know, now for the rest of the story. He died to save us from something, our sin, but he also died and was raised to save us to something. It's not just from your sin, from your evil, from your brokenness, from your problems, and I'll just leave you there. Sorry, I hope you have a good life after that. 
It's that he loves his people so much. He, he loved us before the foundation of the world, before people were even created. He loved us in his own mind and as a result died on the cross and was raised so that we would be saved from sin, but that we would be saved to godliness. We're saved to holiness. We are saved so that we might live a holy life. Now, I'm to be candid, this is not something that we in confessional churches in the midst of an evangelical church land do a great job of talking about. We do a great job of talking about salvation from, we do excellent on that, praise God for that, right? Hill worth dying on. But I, I would suggest that maybe we haven't done quite as good of a job of talking about, like, your life is still yours because you have been saved so that you would be holy. That's not a message we talk about nearly enough. And you can see it kind of in our thinking, right? I, I still have my life so that I can be happy, right? I'm still here so I can be happy. We talked about it in Sunday school this morning, right? Or maybe so I can, I can maybe even help others. No. You still exist here in this place so that you can glorify God and display his character in being holy. That is a completely kind of antithetical view. It's the opposite of how Americans tend to think. And we tend to think that my life is mine. It's been given to me to live the way I want for my own good and the good of my family and my children and you know, my grandkids or whoever else. And it's a totally radically different way of approaching life to think that my life is mine simply for a time so that I can live to the godliness that God has called me to. And it's because of that that passages like 1 Timothy chapter 3 really give us sometimes a bit of heartburn. Because what's happening here is, remember Jesus has said, repent, proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand. He begins to explain what the kingdom is like. And we're going to be honest, some of us don't like some of the things in the list. And we might like some of the things in the list, but we might not like all of the things in the list. And it forces us to kind of wrestle with this reality of, am I going to listen to God's word and, and be obedient and submissive to it? Or am I going to be my own little boss? You see, what's going to happen here in chapter 3, it's within the context of elders and deacons. What's being explained are the ethics of the kingdom of God. Now, friends, I, I don't mean to be a bit obnoxious with this, but I will make the point. This is a list of what your life is supposed to be like in some fashion. This is the design for everybody in some form or fashion. Now, there are some of these specific commands that get nuanced a little bit for how they're uh, applied in your own life. Right? We wouldn't expect infants to be not a drunkard specifically because they're, you know, not able to even get their own drink. But you see the point. This is the ethics of what the kingdom of God is supposed to be. This is what your design is. If we were going to be kind of really particular about it, we would say, this is the user manual of what Christians are supposed to look like. This is the example 
again, if we wanted to put it kind of even more clear terms, this is the answer to what do you want to be when you grow up? You've asked that question before, I'm sure. You've been asked that question, and we've said things like, I want to be an astronaut, you know, or I want to be in Space Force now, I guess, that's just funny. Um, or I want to be a fireman, or, you know, I want to be a whatever. I want to discover dinosaur bones, and that'll be fun. Nobody ever really says that they should. I, I want to just be First Timothy 3. But that's what's being laid out here is this is the example of what holy people look like. This is what I want to be when I grow up. Designed for everybody. Now, recognizing, though, that we don't tend to like rules in this country. Well, I'll kind of nuance that. We like rules for everybody else but us. Right? I like it when you have rules. I just don't like it when I have rules. And so one of the kind of things that we're very fond of doing with lists like this and specific commands like this is to say, well, I mean, did God really mean it? I've heard that somewhere before. I don't remember exactly where. Did God really say? That's a little tongue-in-cheek from Sunday school today, right? That's what the devil himself says in the garden. Surely the Lord didn't actually mean it when he said, this is what your officers have to be like. And it's intriguing how uh, even you can read commentaries and scholarship and all sorts of things in the church and the American church, how aggressively we work to make this mean anything but what it says. This is what the officers of God are supposed to be like. That's it. This is the list. This is the job description of a pastor. This is the job description of a ruling elder. This is the job description of a deacon. These are the qualifications for these men to serve in office. So I'll make the point briefly. They are, they're mandatory. This is that kind of first thing that is out of sync with how the world operates. We, we love to have rules that are kind of in place, but we're willing to bend under certain circumstances. That's not the case. Right? We, we can't say here, well, oh, look, hey, a guy meets all of these qualifications except for two, but he's loaded, so he's fine, I guess. Right? Money makes up for a lot of ills, right? That's our temptation, isn't it? To, to take, or perhaps even instead, to take the things that we love and to put them into practice or put them into place instead. It's so common, actually, in our denomination unfortunately, to have your ruling elders simply be the men who make the largest amount of money in the church. It's so grievous. It's not the answer. I'll make one more point just briefly before we jump into it. I know I'm doing a bit of a lengthy preamble to get to it. But the other thing you're going to see is that this is a list of things that the men are already doing. This is not a list of, like, potential. You know, I love soccer. I follow soccer aggressively. And right now it's the transfer window where you can buy and sell players. And um, one of the teams I, the team I love the most is in process of potentially buying a kid who's worth $135 million. That's not his salary. That's just how much they would have to pay to get him. $135 million for a kid who I think is 21. Right? It's nuts. Absolutely crazy to me. He's not actually that good yet. But they're buying the potential. And so they think, 
you know, eight years of this kid playing for the team will justify a $135 million transfer fee and paying him roughly in the neighborhood of $300,000 a week. His potential justifies it. And unfortunately, a lot of times we do this with church leadership too, where we say, look, I like that guy, and I know he doesn't fit all of the qualifications, but he's going to grow into it. Praise God, let him grow into it next time. Right? Not this time. This is a list of what God's leaders are already supposed to be. The way you kind of really ultimately choose leaders is you find the guys who are already doing this and pick those guys. Don't pick the ones who will grow into it. All right, so then what do we say? Well, I mean, this is a big list. How are we kind of supposed to think about this? How how do we define what leadership is and what these men are supposed to be like, what their lives are supposed to be like? I would really kind of say it, it... At its simplest form, they have rightly ordered relationships. And there's going to be four relationships that are rightly ordered, meaning they function correctly. Their relationship with themselves, the relationship with their family, the relationship with the church, and the relationship with the world. And you can see it's right four concentric circles. Relationship with himself, that's the thing he interacts with the most. Person he interacts with the most is the thing that takes place between his ears. How he interacts with his family, that's the next closest circle, the thing he interacts with second most frequently, or should be, after himself. Third, the church. And then fourth, the world. And it's intriguing how ultimately you're going to see what are the qualifications to be an elder or a deacon in the church. You have to have rightly ordered relationships in all four of those circles. You don't get three and a pass on one. Well, he stinks at controlling his family, but he's great. The other three, he's fine. Doesn't work that way. All four. All right, so let's start first. uh, Rightly ordered relationships with himself. Now, you get this summary statement for both elders and deacons. For elders, it's he is to be um, above reproach. That's verse 2, that's your summary statement. Again, rightly ordered relationships and everything. Deacons get the same idea with them being blameless. This concept that their, their holiness, the saved to aspect of their life has percolated and permeated all of their various activities. But what does it look like here in terms of actual specific pragmatics? What does it look like for those of us that don't do abstract theory but only really function well at thinking in particulars? Well, some of the attributes in the realm of the self. Verse 2, he's sober-minded, meaning his mind is not one that's prone to kind of flittering off into the ether and thinking about pointless things constantly. And that's not to say that he only thinks about the Bible all of the time or things like that. But it is means to say that he's not preoccupied with the frivolity of life. It used to be in our book of church order, this is one of those things that we're working to change or whatever, but it had the idea, they used the old translation of he's grave. Meaning there's a sobriety, a seriousness to him. And again, that doesn't mean he's uh, grumpy all of the time. Doesn't mean that he's sad, that he's Eeyore and he mopes all of the time. But rather that he's spiritually 
of the right mindset to deal with life and death issues all the time. I mean, we kind of understand this conceptually in different contexts. Do you want your anesthesiologist to walk in right before surgery and be like, yeah, it's fine. Did you watch the ball game? I'm just going to wing this. You'll be okay. No, no, I don't want you in here. You need to go find someone else to work on. Right? You're not touching me. There's no way. Right? A surgeon's just like, yeah, I cheated my way through med school. I don't know what we're doing. But we'll sort it out once I get you open. It'll be fine. No, you won't because you're not going to get me. You want somebody who's serious and mentally and emotionally thoughtful and prepared on this. Self-control, there, again, the idea the self is not uh, uh, all over the place and out of control and unmanaged. I love how they list specifically for both elder and deacon here. Paul does, uh, not a drunkard. Their relationship with themselves and with alcohol is one of control. They're not ones in which you can see excess governs their life. Their relationship with themselves is one of discipline. It's one of order. It's one of structure. It's one of peace. Sobriety and safety. Again, it may be... That one's a bit uncouth for many of us. Like, well, I mean, obviously we're not going to pick, you know, some wino. Okay, hopefully not. Good for you. Proud of you. I mean, low bar to step over, but good for you. We do, however, live in a very wealthy suburb. How about not a lover of money? He's so well-ordered in his relationship with himself that he's, he's not constantly breeding discontent in his heart. Right? That is an unbelievably challenging qualification, isn't it? To be so contented with God's love for you and the way that Christ is caring for you and his kingdom that your life is not, your heart is not constantly manufacturing discontent. Now, intriguingly, this is not one of those things that we tend to talk about that much uh, because uh, I think many of us immediately feel guilty. Because weirdly enough, the more money you have, the less content you tend to be. We tend to have a lot of money, so we tend to be very discontented. We don't work very hard at trusting God's promises and being content to be uncomfortable for just a spell. The deacons have a specific kind of addition here that they not be double-tongued. Meaning that they're, they're so comfortable in how they govern themselves that they're not prone to just kind of fly off the handle and speak too much and overspeak or speak one thing here and then another thing there and be those that are of, you know, using their mouths to promote evil or inconsistency. You see what's happening is Paul is describing for the officers of the church men whose relationship with himself is one that the self doesn't govern. Christ does. And you can see that's why it's so important that when we have this sort of conversation that we talk about the gospel of being saved to something. Because apart from the Spirit of God working in the lives of, of people, these attributes don't show up. Apart from the power of the Holy Spirit transforming people, this is not what their life looks like. A relationship with the self that's rightly ordered where they're governed by the spirits, governed by the Word of God, instead of constantly out of control. And for some of you, you can kind of, again, as point of contrast, remember what you were like as perhaps a teenager at times. 
where it was like, I'm trying to do the best I can, but inside just feels out of control and I can't stop crying or being excited or, you know, actually do my homework the way I'm supposed to. But it's not just kind of contained to the self. Paul doesn't stop by just saying, look, if, if a guy can just control himself, he'll be okay. And I love this because the office of leadership isn't just about dealing with yourself, it's about dealing with people. So the next kind of realm that you have to see this holiness worked out in is in the realm of the family. And you make the question here, how can they govern the church if they can't even interact with the people that they have to love and have to love them? And the people that you're stuck with, that you, you, you can't get rid of, if you can't figure out how to deal with them, how are you going to figure out how to deal with the people that you're not stuck with? How's that going to work? You get this uh, comment again for both elder and deacon, husband of one wife. He's a, a one-woman kind of man. He's marked by fidelity. We would even go so far as to say it's much more sexual purity. He's the kind of guy who is governed by holy living in his relationship with his wife. Not one who's prone to looking around for other wives in the midst of being married. His sexual appetite doesn't uh, shape him as such that he is kind of all over the place, looking at other places. Instead, he's husband to one wife. He's a one-woman kind of man. He's faithful to her. You also get to see, though, he's not violent but gentle. Now, I'm going to put this one in the family category. It could have gone in one of the other categories, but I suspect home is the place where we get to see this the most, isn't it? It's the place where we can easily be the most aggravated with those people because they know how to push our buttons, and sometimes they do, don't they? push those buttons on purpose. Our beloved spouse or those beloved children, we understand what that's like, where we want to just be aggravated with them. And what does the man of God look like? Well, even in that home relationship when the other partner's being, um, we'll say gently a goofball, uh, that they are filled with gentleness and not violence. They don't lose their temper in such a way that they're marked, not just, I'm not talking just simply fisticuffs, you know, it's not like they're laying a hand on their kids or on their spouse, but the, the style of interaction is one in which they are known to be gentle and kind, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And they know how to manage their household well. If you really want to I mean, kind of put this into to practice, you could say, well, how do we pick our church officers Pick the good dads and the good husbands. I mean, I don't mean to be snarky about it because that, that's not the only qualification, but if a guy's not a good husband or a good dad, he's probably not a good elder or a good deacon. Because if he can't manage his household well, how will he know how to care for God's church? If he can't figure out how to keep his own children submissive who are at some point in their life most likely much smaller than him and rely on him for food and for sustenance, how on earth will we be able to do it with those that are not? To do it with kindness and charity and affection and love. Has to rightly ordered relationship with the self, rightly ordered relationship with the family, rightly ordered relationship with the church. He's respectable. It's easy to respect the man. And I think we've all known this, and I'm go ahead and I'll say this out loud. We've all known that kind of person who's um, maybe living a godly life, but you go, it's just really hard to respect them. 
Like, I have to work at respecting them. That's not a good attribute for a leader. Leaders are the kind of people that it should be, elders and deacons are the kind of people that it should be easy to just say, look, I, I, I enjoy respecting that person. I enjoy showing honor to them. I enjoy it. It's easy. It's not hard work. And that relationship then is also uh, outlined here as uh, you get to see again in verse 2, uh, the elder is hospitable, meaning he's in a sense approachable and welcoming. And I, that doesn't just mean that he takes people into his home. Uh, I, I, this is a, a hill I will die on. Uh, we have to make sure that we don't define these attributes in a way that Jesus couldn't be an elder in his own church. We know that Jesus didn't have a house that he could invite people into all the time. And we know the Son of Man didn't have a place to rest his, home, you know, rest his head in his home for a long period of his ministry. Instead, what it is, is it's a style of communication that is welcoming to those that are perhaps not peers, welcoming to those that are, I'll even go ahead and say, children of the church. It's comfortable that they come up and talk to them and interact with them, and it's, they're not so scary or so intimidating or so terrible to talk to. And again, we all have had that experience where you talk to a person and you know, they just give the vibe of like, why are you talking to me again? How dare you? You're beneath me. Like what an evil, evil idea for a leader in God's church. Able to teach, he needs to be able to know the truth and be able to communicate. It doesn't mean everybody has to be able to teach at the same level. Doesn't mean you have to be able to teach the same people. Sometimes that means teaching the children of God. Praise the Lord for that. Right? What a good gift to have faithful Sunday school teachers that raise up the next generation. Fairly certain the Bible talks about that a whole lot. Uh, making sure that the, the faith once for all delivered to the saints is passed on. And then one more I might note specifically uh, within the context of the church. Verse 3. He's a man who is not quarrelsome. We might say this differently to say he's a peacemaker. He's one that promotes unity instead of kind of fomenting that nudgery of making everybody miserable. And I would love to pretend like this is something that is so, you know, Presbyterians have excelled at for, you know, the last 200 years, but I would be lying if I said that. And I would love to pretend like this is something that Presbyterians have excelled at uh, since the invention of Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all those sorts of things, but I would be doubly lying if I said that. And too often, unfortunately, we find uh, those that are perhaps the most skilled at thinking the thoughts of theology are also the ones that are most skilled at provoking the weak. Provoking them into anger, provoking them into torment, provoking them into um, hurt feelings, provoking them into just being unsettled, looking for a good fight. And I'm going to be honest with you, this is one of those attributes that is increasingly rare to find in this kind of cultural moment that we're in, but is so extremely important Men that are aggressive and quick and kind in promoting peace, not promoting aggravation. All right, so the relationship with the church is, again, dominated by those that have healing hands instead of those that have hands that hurt. Now, again, that doesn't mean that they're not willing or able to do difficult things, but uh, in many cases, you think they're like doctors. This is what leaders are like. They are those that are uh, practiced in healing 
Lastly, that fourth relationship, rightly ordered relationship with the world, and this you get to see in verse 7 for the elders there, moreover, he must be thought well of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is an intriguing one that even unbelievers have to think well of an officer in order for him to be qualified. I, I find this to be intriguing. Those that know not the Lord that hate them, hate him in their heart, still have to think well. Why? Because this is a man who is so dominated by integrity. His business practices are just. He's kind. He helps when help is needed. And people know that he's a reliable good man. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be, you know, those that hate him that try to, you know, throw him under the bus proverbially or whatever. But, um, it does mean that he's known for his character, even by those that perhaps uh, might not value it. Uh, now, kind of four specific relationships. And again, as I said, they're mandatory. This is not optional. This isn't a, well, it's just good recommendation that you kind of have to be that way. Uh, it's really, you know, a bit of fear and trepidation, honestly, for an officer to have to think through this. One of the first things we do in officer training is to have that emotionally brutal process of saying, does this describe you? Are you a person that you can, you know, if I call your wife behind your back, is she going to say that you're not violent, you're gentle? On an average day, is she going to say you're not quarrelsome, right? (laughs) Everybody knows you get the wrong day. She's going to say yes, but on an average day, is she going to say you're not quarrelsome but gentle and it does kind of put a really wonderful and healthy and whole and terrifying portrait of what an officer is supposed to be in fact actually it's kind of so pervasive you may have noticed I skipped over The one that I think is (laughs) the most uncomfortable of all of these is that these offices, the way our book of church order has it written, are open to men only. In fact, they describe men only. Uh, The Bible is very clear that leadership in the church, and I'm not talking about leadership in the nation, I'm talking specifically leadership in the church, leadership in the home, uh, is one of male headship. But as if you were to think that that is a tyrannical and, and, you know, again, predatory thing, we've already made the point that's not the case, but you get to see in verse 12, I'm sorry, in verse 11, this relationship is one that is to permeate the entire home, so much so that deacons have qualifications for their wives as well. Their wives are to be dignified, just like the men. Their wives are not to be slanderers, just like the men. Their wives are to be sober-minded, just like the men. Faithful in all things, just like the men. You see, this is not one of those things where we can say, hey, this is what our male officers are supposed to be like, and our ladies get to kind of do whatever they want. No, in fact, actually, the portrait is, is the real picture, is that all of us have been saved to this type of lifestyle in some fashion. All of us. All of us have been, those that know Christ and have been redeemed by him, are saved to be sober-minded. 
We have the Spirit of God living within us so that we, too, might be respectable and hospitable. All of us, men and women, boys and girls. Even our young ones in the church that have just come to know Christ and don't fully know all of the consequences of that. They have the Spirit of God in them so that they, too, will not be quarrelsome. And parents of teenagers are like, yes, I know, I believe it. They're supposed to not be quarrelsome. Neither are you. All right, good, move on. But so that all of our lives, as the Spirit works within us, we all look like this together. And it makes it easy, and I guess at the same time, very difficult, because everybody fits this category, and so it's all of our men we want to put in this category. Now, very quickly, a couple of points of application. This should give us, if we actually believe this, one of the most comprehensive and sophisticated doctrines of the Holy Spirit of anywhere in the church. Because if this is what we believe men have to be like in order to serve, or their wives have to be like in order for them to serve, we really have to trust in God's Spirit to work. Wow. Amen. Hallelujah. The Lord does work and He does change people. Two, I think it's also important that we begin to understand um, that we're not defining this from the perspective of perfection. That's the Lord's task That's not ours. What we're looking at here is is a lifestyle dominated by these attributes. A person losing their temper once, getting in an argument online once doesn't, I would say, perhaps disqualify them forever. But a lifestyle of living in such a fashion. So it should give us a very high view of the Spirit because He is the one who does this in our lives. Uh, Two is it should give us a high view of office. I, I can just from personal testimony's sake in this church, that's the history of Christ Ridge, isn't it? You can see the health of the church reflected in God providing officers. On the day that God provided Grady, the church changed, didn't it? You could tell it like the next Sunday. The Sunday that God provided Tom and the other officers that came in with him. Literally, we added, I think, four families the next Sunday. Like you could see it. The health and the blessing of this church has been directly connected to God providing officers along the way. And to see now, look, praise God, we're in a new building. Praise the Lord. It's wonderful. You saw our, you heard our budget report last or two weeks ago, I guess now. Praise God how he's blessed us so richly. We get to see the, the wonderful growth in the church. We have people baptized, babies baptized. Praise God, he's blessing us so richly. It's Christ's church, and he does bless us. And as we already confessed, he blesses us through the officers. So I would simply ask as your pastor now, as in the next two weeks or so, we go into the officer election nomination process. Please, 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 please nominate these men, not your buddies. Now, if your buddies are these men, nominate them. But you see what I'm saying? Of like, Don't just nominate the people that you like the most, that you share the same sense of humor with. Nominate the people that do this, that remind you of Jesus. Because the church is blessed through them and by them that God would be pleased and glorified in all things. Let me close in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would... Um, Make it true in our hearts, just as it is true as you've written it, for Christ's sake. Amen.